please take your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 96, just a few pages over, Psalm 96. We will get there in a moment and be there just for a moment, but that will be a good starting point for you to have your Bible open to. Last week I uh, told you and will remind you this week at the beginning that normally we go to a passage of Scripture and we sit on that passage of Scripture. We camp out there, you guys know, we walk verse by verse and examine it and explain it and uh, strive to understand it. But we're starting and getting into a new series right now where that will be less of the case. We will be more so looking systematically at a subject in the Bible and that subject is the doctrine of the church. What does the Bible have to say about the church? And so we'll be jumping around and looking at multiple verses of Scripture, trying to get a better understanding of what God expects uh, of His people and how God has designed His people to assemble. Last week, we began by looking at the church's existence. The church actually exists, and that means it has an origin. And what does its origins mean for us? It it comes from God, and so that, that tells us a lot. We spent last week looking at that. This week, we're going to begin looking at the church's purpose and calling. And we'll identify over the next several weeks several things that will fit under this heading. So this is the church's purpose and calling part one of several. Uh, But it'll be good for us to understand how the church is supposed to function in this world, accomplish her calling, accomplish her task, It'll be good for us to even understand what is her task. Honestly, there are two things to highlight at the beginning when we talk about the church's purpose. First, it means we can't just do whatever we want. That we're limited by God's direction, by the lordship, headship of Christ. He governs us and dictates to us what we are to be doing. But also, we must begin by starting out and saying, a lot, of, a lot of misconceptions about the purpose of the church exists. As I said last week, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that most people can attend church and will attend church, will even join a church and not give much thought to what the church is or what she's supposed to be. And because of that, misconceptions have arisen, haven't they? Some would say that the church's sole purpose is to do social good in this world. To engage herself in social projects and social work to make the world a better place. In fact, whole denominations have given themselves over to such a way of thinking. Where now truth is sacrificed and conviction is dismissed and conscience isn't really cared about. Instead, as long as we leave the world better than how we found it, we're, we're doing the will of God. We're doing the purpose of God. Other churches maintain that the purpose and goal of a church is to attract as many people as we possibly can by whatever means necessary. Which always plunges a church into the methodology of entertainment. Everything they do is built on entertainment. They think if I just attract people and maybe expose them to something about God, primarily try to shape their morals so they'll be good people, if I'll just try to get as many people as I possibly can through whatever means I need, well then that is success in God's eyes. That's the purpose of the church. Still others have reduced, reductionist statements have reduced the church through well-meaning statements, trying to define it as a collection of hypocrites or a hospital for sinners. All of those things reveal a real serious lack of understanding about what God intends for His people when they gather together as His body. The church is so much more than just a social project organization. The church has so much more intended for her than just gathering people which sounds good, but misses the glorious purposes that Christ has set out for us. Our church has a greater calling than just merely being a hospital for sinners. 
the chief purpose of a church, if we had to summarize it down to one condensed statement, is to glorify God. That is our ultimate calling. Which means we are not free to do as we wish. We can't invent our own methods or our own ways. Which also means the church doesn't exist for us primarily. The church doesn't exist and the church doesn't meet for our encouragement or to make us feel better or to tickle our ears or provide an emotional outlet. The church is primarily about God. The church exists primarily for God. The church gathers primarily for God. And whatever benefit and whatever blessing there may be for you and I, and there certainly are some as we'll look at through this series, it only, be, it only comes to be a benefit, it only becomes a blessing as we draw near to God and as we exalt Him and glorify Him. So I'll begin this morning by saying the chief purpose of the church in a singular phrase, is to glorify God at all costs. And while some of these things I've mentioned briefly will glorify God, social work, gathering people together to hear the Gospel, certainly, and other things, the truth is the church should be willing to sacrifice all things, even good things, for the purpose of glorifying God. So now let me shift directions just a little bit because a new question emerges in our minds, I hope at least. That question is, how does the church glorify God? How is God glorified in our midst when we come together, when we assemble as the body of Christ? And here, we begin to see that there is a singular purpose for the church, but that singular purpose is accomplished through a few very specific tasks. Faithfulness, to glorify God is accomplished not through every means, but through a few specific tasks. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. The first, most important, I believe, task for the church to glorify God is worship. Regular, consistent, weekly worship. In fact, I believe worship is of such importance to the people of God and such importance to God Himself that there is no greater thing we can give ourselves to. There are a lot of good things we can do and a lot of commands we're to obey. But chief among them in glorifying God is the worship of His saints. And so we begin with this first area, the purpose and calling of the church to glorify God is to worship Worship is all over the Scriptures. From as early as the first few chapters of Genesis to the very end of the book. Worship is highlighted and given a place of prominence. As we look at the Scriptures worship book, just the book of Psalms, we discover that to be true very quickly. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 95.6 O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 99.5 Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Psalm 96 where I asked you to open this morning. Let's look at Psalm 96, we could look at the whole chapter. I just want to look at the first nine verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. 
We are called to be a people of worship. Worshiping the one true glorious God who is, who is great and clothed in splendor and majesty. Who have strength and beauty surrounding Him. Worship is a major part of the Christian life. In the Bible, it talks about worship consisting in two elements. It consists in an individual element and in a corporate element. Individually, we find passages like Romans chapter 12. Several of you know this verse, or, or you will know this verse after I read it. Romans 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The singular nature of that verse reminds us, and there are many other verses like it, passages like it, reminds us that we are to individually be living lives that honor God and therefore worship Him. God is to be worshipped every day of the week by you and by me. Through our obedience to Him, through our prayers of thanksgiving and praise, our expressions of dependency, individually God is to be worshipped. Before the church, that's what we're talking about this morning, in a corporate way, we are to come together primarily to worship. Many passages like Colossians chapter 3, we just walked through Colossians, talks about the church gathering for worship. Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody not just for the sake of doing it, but making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And numerous other passages that exhort us to come together and to lift our hearts and lift our minds and lift our voices to God in worship. In fact, it is the number one response we find throughout the Scriptures to anybody who encounters God. And anybody who encounters a wonderful work of God. The people of Israel, before they go astray, they're delivered from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And what do they do after the Egyptian army is swallowed up in the Red Sea? They worship. Mary and Elizabeth, when they find out God's blessing of opening their wombs and giving them gifts, Mary, the Lord Jesus, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist, they worship. All throughout the Scriptures, people encounter God and they Worship, they're driven to see His glory and His splendor and His power. And the only appropriate response is for them to fall to the ground and declare His praises. And they've done that from the beginning. And Revelation tells us they'll do that through the end for the rest of eternity. God's people are a worshiping people. And we worship corporately. We gather together to honor God. We honor Him with our individual lives so that we might honor Him together when we come together as His church. If I could convince you of anything this morning, it would be both of the seriousness and importance of us gathering together to worship. Many other benefits come with belonging to the church. Almost innumerable benefits. But the chief privilege and calling is worship. Let me give you two other reasons why I say this is the most important thing we can do. The first reason I think worship is the most important thing we can do as a church and as a people is because God is worthy and ought to be worshipped. In Luke chapter 19, verse 40, Jesus has entered Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, as we call it. He's going to the cross, and the people are screaming and shouting, praising Him. The Pharisees come up and say, Rebuke your disciples and tell your followers to be quiet. Do we know what Jesus says? If these were silent, even the rocks would cry out. Embedded in that teaching is an implication that the very worth of God demands worship 
And if humanity won't render it, creation will. God by His pure worth should be worshipped. Revelation chapter 4. Let's, let's get a glimpse into heaven. Revelation chapter 4. The throne room of God. In verse 6, we're introduced to these living creatures. Four of them. They're around the throne. On each side of the throne. They're full of eyes in front and behind. And in verse 8, this is what they do of Revelation 4. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What are they continually doing day and night? Worshiping. Verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, well, then the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. And what do they do? Worship Him. They worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and they say, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. These heavenly scenes are people worshiping God purely out of His worth to be worshipped. Revelation chapter 5. The very next chapter, a few verses later. Verse 9. These four living creatures and these 24 elders sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What is the scene of heaven? It's not stagnation. It's not idleness. It's not impassion or indifference. It is convicted, sincere, passionate worship of the Lord on the throne. Because He's worthy of it. And that's our calling. That's our future. That's our privilege. That's our purpose, our task, even here on earth. We taste heaven now in our worship of God. God is worthy to be worshipped. A few other verses from the Old Testament just to highlight that. God Himself speaking in Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God cares about His glory and cares about His worship. Leviticus 10, verse 3, we'll, we'll look at this passage in a moment. The Lord says, Among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Isaiah 48, 11, the Lord says, For My own sake, for My own sake, I do it. For how should My name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Psalm 86.10 Talking of the Lord, the psalm says, For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Which is one of the most worshipful, worshipful phrases we can utter. You are who you are, God. And I can think of no better way to describe you and to honor you than to say you are who you are. 
Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, You have made heaven and earth. We worship God because He's worthy. And that inherent worth is enough. It's enough reason for us to render to Him constant praise, constant adoration, constant thanksgiving, constant exaltation. Understand this, that even if God did nothing for us, no incarnation of Christ, no cross, no resurrection, He would still be worthy of our worship. And fully deserve it. And we would be just as obligated to render it to Him. Indeed, every human being who's ever lived has a responsibility to worship God. Not just Christians. Purely based out of His inherent worth. As the people of God, though, we have a unique privilege because we get the taste of the grandeur and glory of God. We get a glimpse of how great He is. And we get the glimpse of the meaning of offering God sincere worship. The second reason worship is a chief calling for every Christian and therefore every church is because worship is the culmination of our faith and our relationship with God. When we gather together and we sing praises and we pray and we read the Scriptures, when we worship, we're expressing our salvation. We're expressing our thanksgiving and our gratitude. We're expressing our dependency upon God. Our reverence for God. We're confessing the great truths about God. And therein we have a great privilege because we are reminding ourselves that God in His grace has revealed Himself to us and we can know Him and we can taste and see that He is good. And so we worship. Just built in to singing about the Scriptures, singing, singing truths from the Scriptures is this, should be this attitude of gratitude, attitude of thanksgiving. Because God is not discoverable. We don't discover God. God only reveals Himself. Because He's too grand and too high for us to discover. And so anything we know of God that's true is by His grace in revealing Himself to us. And anytime we sing and we worship and we pray and we preach and we praise Him according to that truth, we're saying thank You for letting us know You. For revealing something of Yourself. So when we worship, our salvation, our relationship with God, God's grace poured out on us continually is ushered to the forefront of our lives. We acknowledge that He's good. That He's praiseworthy. That He's glorious. That He's knowable. That He's loving. That He's merciful. That He's gracious. And as we do so, our, our faith is furthered, isn't it? We're edified in this never-ending cycle of celebrating God's grace bestowed on us and God's continual grace directed at us. Worship is our chief calling because it summarizes our entire relationship with God. Now, we have two other questions to answer very quickly. How are we to worship? And what are the elements of worship? How are we to worship? Well, first, the Bible says there is a right and a wrong way to worship God. There is a right way and there's a wrong way to worship God. And that's seen from the earliest parts of the Scriptures. Worship, for you and I, is a human experience. Is it? is a human thing that we do to offer God our praise and to exalt Him. But human history, for the most part, has been tainted with sin, right? 
Which means everything, even good things that we're a part of, we corrupt. And that's certainly true of worship. It's as obvious as and as immediate as soon as Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, the fall happens. Chapter 4, we find worship. and We find right worship and bad worship. Immediately after the fall, Cain and Abel offer to God their offerings. Abel's is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And Hebrews 11 says, because Abel had faith and Cain did not. We fast forward just a few centuries into the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 32. And we find them practicing false worship. In, in chapter 24, God had reconfirmed and reaffirmed His covenant with them. In chapters 25-31, through 31, God has told them what, what right worship of Him will look like. God has just, not too, too further in the past, just delivered them from Egypt. And by Exodus chapter 32, what have they done? They've made a golden calf and the Scriptures say they worshipped it. They sacrificed to it and they worshipped it. And before we look down too much on the Israelites, we still have that same problem. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards who said the human heart is an idol-making factory. Leviticus chapter 10. Let's go ahead and flip over there. Another example of false worship that I think is one of the most frightful and one of the most powerful examples of what false worship looks like. Leviticus chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book of your Bible towards the front. Leviticus chapter 10, the first three verses, verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, pause there for a minute, Aaron's the first priest, these are his sons who are helping him. They each took in his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now here are two men who had access to all of these things. They were supposed to be helping their dad offer right worship to God on behalf of the people. They were supposed to be acting as priests. They knew the regulations. They knew the rules. They knew how God had said to be approached. And they probably even had good intentions to a degree. They're at least trying to worship, right? Why is God so harsh here? Why is God so stubborn? I mean, their motives were right, right? I mean, they intended good. And God wants to kill them just because it was the wrong kind of fire. God gives His reasoning in verse 3 for why He's done this. Moses says to Aaron, who just lost his two sons, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified. I'll be set apart, regarded as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. His reasoning is that if you draw near to Me, you draw near to me on my terms. And I defend my name in front of all the other people. I will be revered and glorified. And then there's this very intriguing addition just stapled on, tacked on right at the end of verse 3. Aaron held his peace. His two sons, killed by God Himself, if ever there was a reason to complain, here it is. But we're told Aaron held his peace. Which means there was no objection. No argument. Which further means Aaron knew exactly what God was saying. I am worshipped according to my terms, not yours. 
and I am approached according to my terms, not yours. And any time we try to usurp God's authority and define our own worship, we are in essence saying, our worldly wisdom is better than yours, God. And God says, no, it's not. I will be revered. I will be treated with respect. I will be glorified. And there is nothing to be said about the matter. God's holiness dictates everything to us, church, including how we worship Him. Worship is not a free-for-all, do-whatever-you-want kind of event. Now, false worship doesn't just pertain to what we do in external actions. It also deals with our hearts. Flip over to Amos chapter 5. Amos is in the latter part, the last part of your Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. And they're minor just because they're Content is smaller, not because they're less important. So if you go to Matthew, which is the first New Testament book, you can start backing up, turning to your left, until you hit Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, in my opinion, is as equally frightful as Leviticus 10. In Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron do something wrong. Their external actions are wrong. In Amos chapter 5, the actions seem to be right. The motive is wrong. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God speaking to Israel. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is a frightful passage because of the rest of what Scripture has to say about worship. God cares about His glory. We've established that. Therefore, God cares about His worship. We've established that. It's important to God. So for God to look at somebody's worship and say, I hate it, is a serious matter. In these verses, we find that the Israelites are holding their feasts. The feasts that they're supposed to hold. They're assembling together even in a solemn way, a reverent way. They're conducting their offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. They're making noise or, or songs to the Lord. They're singing, making melody with harps. Yet God says, I will not listen. He calls their songs noise, no better than white static noise. Your offerings, I won't look on them. I won't accept them. I have no delight when you come together. I hate, I despise, I detest your feasts. You render to me what you call worship and I hate it all. Even if we do the right things, we may still be rendering false worship. Because worship isn't just about what we do. It's also about the heart. It's also about being faithful to God and trusting in God and following God and loving God and offering to God worship of sincerity. Not going through the motions. God rejects false worship. You can have the wrong practices and the right motives, and it's still false. Or you can have the right practices and the wrong motives, and it's still false. And God rejects all false worship. With, with all I can muster, 
all the conviction I can I can attest to in my heart with all the authority of the pastoral office that I hold, I say that it is a shame for any group or any church to pretend to worship God. To just go through the motions. Or to ignore entirely how God has said He should be treated and approached. It is a shame to sing glorious truths of the Gospel, glorious truths of the Bible with no passion, with no conviction, with no faith, with no sincerity. It would be better for us to remain silent. It would be better for us not to assemble than to render to something something to God that is less than true. Than to do something that is little more than ritual and call it worship and thus dishonor God. And church, we might be guilty of this very thing. We might honestly be doing everything right externally and guilty of of offering something to God that is not honest, true, or real. And if so, God have mercy on us. When we encounter the people in the Scriptures worshiping, they do it with their whole selves. When God accepts worship in the Scriptures, it's from people who are worshiping with their whole being. All of who they are. They engage their minds in the truths of of Scripture. They engage their, their... Passions and emotions with their bodies because God has so moved them. What are the elders in Revelation 4 and 5 doing? Falling down. Lifting their voices. I do not think External expressions alone are any indication that somebody's worshiping. But I'm becoming more convinced that the continual absence of external expressions means we're missing the mark. Very quickly, and I hate to be very quick on this second part because it's so crucially important. But let me tell you what right worship looks like from John chapter 4. Flip over to John chapter 4, verse 19 through 24. And I'm going to run through this. This is the only time we find Jesus speaking explicitly about worship. And He teaches us a lot. A few quick truths from John 4, 19-24. Let's, let's read it real quick. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. He's just told her everything about her. And in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she changes the subject to worship. Off of her sinful self to the subject of worship. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain... She's a Samaritan. They're worshiping on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The first quick truth here is that God seeks true worshipers. Which tells us how much God desires it and delights in it. How important it is to Him. The second quick truth is the word true worshipers in verse 23. True worshipers will worship. Which implies there are false worshipers. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, we find another uh, similar reference. Acceptable worship. Which means there's unacceptable worship. God determines what is true and acceptable worship. And those are the kind of worshipers that He's looking for. The third quick truth is that this kind of worship Jesus references in verse 23 and 24 is now here. It's the kind of worship we live in. The hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here. Where the same principles have applied both Old and New Testament, but there's been a transition. We worship God differently now than the believers in the Old Testament. Same principles, but we don't have to go to a temple. Same principles, but we have the Holy Spirit. So there's a difference. And Jesus says that difference now exists where we can more readily, more freely worship God in truth as true worshipers, and God delights in and is seeking such worshipers. Now the main points come from verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must, must worship in spirit and truth. It's not the word or. Spirit or truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit. To worship God in spirit is an internal reference. It does deal with your motives. It does deal with, deal with sincerity and conviction and devotion and, and passion and faith. It should make us realize, as I've already said, that our whole being is to be involved in worship. And yes, that includes our emotions. God has made us emotional beings. We should be moved by our opportunity to worship God. Secondly, truth. We don't worship God apart from truth. We worship God according to His truth. Real quick, I want to introduce you to these principles that have developed through church history. They're called the regulative principle and the normative principle. And they're important for you to know because you're all theologians. The normative principle is the belief that we can do anything in worship as long as Scripture doesn't expressly prohibit it. So anything and everything is fair game. The regulative principle says we can only worship as God has told us to worship. Only as the Bible explicitly says or very strongly implies. I believe the regulative principle is right. We only worship in the ways that God has told us to avoid false worship. And God has told us to worship in spirit and worship according to the truth of His Word. Which is why we strive to make the Scriptures be at the center every time we gather together. Ligon Duncan, who's a Presbyterian a theologian, a president, president of the Reformed Theological Seminary, he says, when we worship, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, we read the Bible, and we see the Bible. And when he says see, he refers to the Lord's Supper and baptism. We see the truth of God at work. We pray the truth of God over each other. We preach the truth of God so that we might know God. We sing the truth of God because that's the only right way to praise God. We read because the Bible tells us to read it, read it publicly. In other words, it's the Bible that defines our worship, exemplifies our worship, regulates our worship, and enables our worship. We are a people who worship according to the truth that God has revealed about Himself. So right worship is built from the very depths of your soul, of who you are. It's, it's done in the Spirit. It's done with sincerity and true faith and true love and true adoration of God at the very deep down core of yourself. And it rises to engage the mind and engage the heart and engage the conscience 
as the truth of God dictates and governs us. That's how we worship rightly. We labor. We labor to sing biblical songs and to read the Bible and to preach verse by verse and to pray through the Bible that we might rightly render to God true acceptable worship. And when we do, not only is God pleased and delights in it, but we church are blessed by it. I will leave the elements of worship for another time. This morning, we must take a moment, even as we are at the end, And we must seriously contemplate and consider what kind of worship do I personally offer to God? A half-hearted, pretending kind of worship that is no better than just existing? Or through the help of the Spirit and the dependency on Christ with the grace of God Himself, do I earnestly seek after, thirst after, and long to exalt God with my voice, with my body, with my mind, with my emotions, with my whole being. We have a great task, a great honor, a great privilege to know God and then to relay back to Him His worth that He's revealed. To tell Him how wonderful we think He is. How much we actually adore Him. How much we actually love Him. How much we are so actually grateful for what He's done for us. We have a privilege every week with brothers and sisters to say thank you with all of our might. But do we do it? Worship is a serious matter to God. And the Bible is covered with teachings about it. Oh God, have mercy on us if we're not moved to worship Him. But the great thing about God's grace and love is that repentance is always available. As long as God's arm of mercy is stretched out, we can repent, find forgiveness, and be strengthened and enabled by His Spirit to rightly worship. And to find the endless joys that exist there. We must only take time and examine ourselves. And say, God, am I just going through the routine? This is what we do every week. Or do I really mean what I sing? Am I really moved by what I hear? Do I really mean what I pray? Do I really want to meet with You? Our faith meets the ground and becomes exercised here. Exercise it according to the glory of God. Father, Your Word, we could continue going through Your Word talking about the high value You place on worship. That it's it's not only a great honor and a great privilege for us, but it's also a a great, serious, important matter to You. Forgive us, O God, where, where we have treated You so, so casually, half-heartedly. Oh, we are so guilty more often than we realize of just going through the motions. Not realizing that we're Offering something to You that's less than our best, that's less than less than we should. And stir us. Oh God, with Your Spirit, stir us to sing with great passion and fervency and to pray with great dependence and faith and to, to listen as if we really believe these are eternal truths. 
please don't hate or despise our solemn assemblies. Please correct us that we might honor you as individuals and a church. Remind us of your glories. Remind us of our calling. Stir us to lay down every distraction, every care or concern of what others may think, and to focus exclusively on you and wholeheartedly adore you and render to you everything we can muster to exalt your name. For you are a good God the maker of heaven and earth. And you have loved us. And that, Lord, is enough. We love you. Help us to express that in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.